This morning, we are continuing the series, The Year of Living Fearlessly. It's a series that we began on January the 3rd, and this morning I want to begin by asking you a question, but I want you to hold your answer for just a moment, and I'll tell you why in just a second. My question is this, how do you fight fire? Now, don't answer that question. How do you fight fire? And, and to help you answer that, I want to give you some, some assistance, some, some guidance from somebody that I believe to be one of the great minds, one of the great thinkers and strategists of the 20th century. How do you fight fire? 90 seconds of help. Check this out. into a sermon, you ought to take that. You know, uh, I thought about Barney and specifically that scene a lot throughout the beginning weeks of this series, The Year of Living Fearlessly, and, and specifically his statement that you fight fire with fire. Now, as I've been reading and studying and praying and preparing for this series, it's amazing. I've been shocked by the tsunami of information that is available concerning the subject of fears and our anxieties. It is an overwhelming volume that's out there and available to us. It, it appears that our fears are epidemic in the world in which you and I live. One noted sociologist describes our situation like this. She says, quote, Americans today are more debt-ridden, obese, medicated, and addicted than we ever have been. For the first time in history, the Centers for Disease Control has announced that automobile accidents are now the second leading cause of accidental death in the United States. The leading cause? Drug overdoses. In fact, more people die from prescription drug overdoses than from heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamine drug use combined. That's a sobering statistic that I think shows us 
that we need to learn how to cope, how to fight our fears. And one of the things that I think we've all kind of noticed throughout this series, if you've been with us, is that there's absolutely no way in the context of a Sunday morning worship service we could adequately address all of the fears and phobias that rear their ugly heads in our lives. But, <laughs> but, I believe with everything I have, God desperately wants to and has chosen to give us some foundational footholds to help us fight our fears. So where Barney Fife would say, you fight fire with fire. You fight fire with fire. God would have us understand and know and live from the reality that we fight fear with fear. We fight fear with fear. Now, to, to get at this, I want to make sure that we understand what I'm talking about. If you've got your Bible, I want you to look in Proverbs chapter number 9. You've got it on your phone, or maybe you've got an actual Bible that you carry around. That's cool, too. Very retro of you. But look in Proverbs chapter number 9. And as you're getting there, I think it's important that we understand what we're talking about when we say fight fear with fear. First of all, we're talking about the fears that produce anxiety in our lives. Our anxieties, our angst, our stress that's toxic many times. There's some things that we ought to be afraid of. We're not talking about that. We ought to be afraid of a hot stove or a loaded deer rifle or a crossing Mopac. We ought to be afraid of those kind of things, but there are a lot of other things that we're afraid of that we're anxious about that haven't even happened yet, that aren't even actually real. Now, they can become very real to us because we ponder them and think about them and worry about them so much, but I've noticed in my own life that most of the stuff that I get anxious about, that I'm fearful of, are, are things that create uncertainty in my life. I, I'm worried about what might happen or what might not happen. Those of us who are parents, we worry about how our kids are going to turn out or if they will ever leave. We worry about, we worry about, you know, will I have enough money to retire or will I have enough money to pay the bills at the end of this month? All of those things are circumstances and situations that create stress and anxiety. But think about this for a second. I think what really creates the anxiety and the fear of those things is our uncertainty concerning whether or not we'll be able to handle them. We, we worry about how we're going to respond to those situations, to those, to those circumstances, because if we knew that we knew how to handle them, we wouldn't be anxious about them. If we knew that we could actually handle whatever comes down the pipe, then we would be a lot less stressed, wouldn't we? If we knew that we had the tools necessary and the, the handles to manage whatever problems or whatever challenges might manifest themselves in our lives, we wouldn't have anything to be worried about. We could just go along with what Jesus says and say, you know what, in this world, we will have many problems, but take heart because he's overcome the world. And if we're in him, then we've overcome the world and we'll just handle it. But that's not how we operate, is it? You know, I, I will tell you from the bottom of my heart, it just, just completely openly, the greatest spiritual challenge that I wrestle with personally 
has nothing to do with what I get to do as my calling, as my living, as the pastor. But just personally, my greatest challenge is anxiety. I, I worry about stuff. I, I'm, I'm fearful of what might happen or what might not happen. And, and this is something that's been a part of who I am and a part of my day-to-day for years. But I've noticed that whenever I do get anxious, whenever I get amped up, it is always, always a function of my faith and my relationship with God not being exactly where it ought to be, where it can be. And it's then that I need to remember you fight fear with fear. Specifically, the fear that's mentioned in Proverbs chapter number 9. Check this out. Proverbs chapter 9 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For though wisdom, through wisdom, your days will be many, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, let's just, let's just put it out there on the table that the fear of the Lord is a loaded term. That, that, there's a lot going on there. Now, I want you to understand, the fear of the Lord is a loaded term just on its own merits. It is packed with power and with promise and with potential for our lives on one hand. But the reality is also that for a lot of us, the fear of the Lord is packed with baggage and misunderstanding and misappropriation and application because of maybe experiences that we've had in churches or other environments where people, man, how many of us are, don't raise your hand on this one, please, but we, we, we're familiar with situations where people loved to kind of hammer the fear of the Lord and they would, they would preach about it and the, the fear of the Lord, ah, and the judgment of God, ah, and the wrath of the Lord, ah. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you just think I'm having a rigor right now. But the reality is, the fear of the Lord is a gift from God, the way he intends it to be in Scripture. Not the way many people misappropriate it and miscommunicate it, but when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it's imperative. It's not just important. It's imperative that we understand this because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of of understanding what is real, what is true, what works in this life. You see, I believe that, that this may be exhibit one, that what we believe actually matters. You know, because... What we believe determines how we live. What I believe determines how I speak, how I interact with people, how I husband, how I father, how I pastor, how I fish, how I hunt, whatever we get to do, all of that is rooted in what we believe. Don't don't buy the lie that you can believe whatever you want and get whatever life you want because that's just not true. The fact is we can believe some stuff that's not true. We can believe stuff that's not true real. And so this this fear of the Lord is the beginning. It is the foundation of understanding, of living a life that actually works. Because God is the one who gave us this life. 
So I want to give you today, I want, to, I want to invite you and encourage you to take notes today because it's imperative that you understand this fear of the Lord concept. Not, not just from an informational data perspective, but from a, a, a transformational lifestyle perspective. So I want to give you a working definition, but then I want to make sure that we understand kind of a couple of really critical things about the fear of the Lord. The definition of the fear of the Lord is just this. The fear of the Lord is the reverent recognition of the absolute authority of God. It is the reverent recognition of the absolute authority of God. Now, that's very, very important. The fear of the Lord is not hiding from God. It's not resenting God. It's just a, a reverent recognition that he is God and I am not. I mean, for some people, that's a radical concept. That was funny. You should have laughed at that. Because there are some people who believe that they're God, at least little g God. That they are the ones who get to determine their own destiny, chart their own course, that they're in charge I would suggest to you that people like that just haven't really been paying attention because the fact of the matter is so much of life is beyond our control and our authority. But when it comes to God, there is nothing beyond, nothing above his authority. There is no supreme court to which God may appeal. He is the supreme court of everything. God's authority. So two things I want you to understand about the authority of God, and they go, they go together. They go together kind of like Fred and Ginger, Lester and Earl, Waylon and Willie. You can't have one without the other. First of all, the authority of God is complete. The authority of God is complete. That means it is absolute. This is reality. And Underneath complete, I want to give you just three ways that we know this, and I'm going to give you some biblical references. We're, we don't have time to go into all of these this morning, but I'm giving them to you, not only because we don't have time, but also because I think it would be an incredible exercise of spiritual growth and faith building for you to go read these and pray through these yourself this week, maybe even this afternoon. First of all, the authority of God is complete because he's the creator he is the author, that's where we get authority, author. He is the creator of everything. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. Everything flows from God's creative genius. God created man. Man did not create God. God is not a man-made myth or a man-made crutch. He created us specifically for relationship. In everything in the world. He is the creator. Number two, he is the sustainer. God sustains everything. The reason the sun came up in the east this morning, and it's a beautiful day in Austin, Texas, is because God felt like it. He kept the earth spinning on its axis one more day. Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 says that in him, specifically in Jesus, all things hold together. If it weren't for God, if it weren't for Jesus, the world would spin into oblivion and chaos. Number three, the authority of God is complete, and he is the judge. 
God will judge everything eventually. Some things he judges along the way. Other things he will set right later. Let me ask you a question real quick. How many of us, right now, how many of us have been wronged by somebody who, as far as we can tell so far, has experienced no consequences for their wronging of us? Let me just see a show of hands. If you've, you've been wronged by somebody and you've, you've seen them, you can keep your hands up. That's okay. Especially if they're sitting next to you. You don't have to point that out. But they've wronged you. They've wronged me, and, and they've experienced no consequences yet. Now, for those of us who have our hands up, who are being honest, how many of us would love a front row seat for the consequence part of their wrong? You know, where like, you're like, God, listen, I trust you. I recognize that you're the judge, but whenever you choose to levy the consequences part of this whole thing, let me know. I want tickets. I, I want to see what happens to that dirty dog whom you love and I'm trying but I, I want we need that there's something inside of us that needs that and the Bible teaches us that God is the judge he will set everything right eventually it may not be on my timetable it may not be on your timetable but he, because his authority is complete he will set it all right and that leads directly into the second most important thing about the authority of God. His judgment is also always good. The authority of God is complete, it's absolute, and it is good. You see, you and I got, we've got, we've got some authority issues, don't we? Surely I'm not the only one. You don't have to raise your hand, but I, I know I, I like to be the king of me. I, I like to be the one who determines my own destiny. I like to be the one who makes the call, makes the choices, decides what's right and what's wrong. But in reality, I resent authority because I've seen it misused or abused so many times. When I remember that God's authority is always good, it is always helpful. It is always life-giving. It is always peace-producing. It is always fulfilling. Then I start to understand more of who he is and who he wants to be in my life. So the authority of God is, is complete, but it's also good. We know that God's authority is good because he is our provider. He provides everything we need. Psalm 147 shows us this, among other places. Number two, we know that God's authority is good because he protects his children. He protects us. Number three, the authority of God is good because he is the healer. All healing, whether it comes through miraculous intervention or medical participation, all healing flows from the great physician, our healer God. And then I think most importantly, we know that the authority of God is good because God is a lover. He is one who loves. The Bible tells us that he is like a pursuing lover. He's like, he's like somebody who's chasing down you and me with his loving kindness, with his goodness. It's not inert. It's not 
neutral, just kind of hanging out there for the taking. He pursues us. And so with that kind of goodness, with that kind of love, we can understand that the fear of the Lord means this reverent recognition that his authority is complete, that it's complete and it's good. Now, we would be doing a gross disservice this morning if we, we sent you out of here, and I'm, I'm hoping you've already been taking notes and you're taking this down and ingesting it spiritually. If, if, you, if you took these notes and then you went to work tomorrow and said, let me show you what we did in church yesterday, you just started dazzling your friends and coworkers with notes from church on Sunday morning, they'd be like, whoa. But how do you live this stuff out? It's one thing to say, the reverent recognition of the absolute authority of God. You fight fear with fear. Yes, amen. How do you do that? Now, today is, is January the 24th, which means as a church family, we are on, many of us are on day 21 of the Fearless 30, beginning of the year. Give it up for the Fearless 30. Come on. Now, now, for those of you who maybe are new today, what, what we did way back on January the 4th is we made a commitment as a church family that we would begin 30 days of, of clean eating, kind of following this whole 30 eating program and plan, if you can, medically and, and health-wise. But, but in addition to eating right, we're going to take in the Word of God and read one chapter from the book of Proverbs every day for those 30 days here at the beginning of the year. And Julie and I got really excited about it because we had done the Whole30 eating program back in the summer for the first time ever as a family. And I remembered that as I was thinking about this whole subject of fighting fear with fear, because I remember when we got ready to start Whole30 back in August, we did a lot of, of research and preparation. We read the book and we, we looked at what the program consisted of, and I, I remember reading this, I was going, man, this looks intense. Like, because here, here's the thing you got to understand, when we started this clean eating thing, I, I'm one of these guys, I'm not necessarily gluten-free, I'm gluten-full. I like me some wheat, I like some bread, I, I like grains, and, and part of this whole 30 thing is you, you get rid of the grains, you, you eat clean, whole foods, nothing processed, no sugar added. And as I was reading through this list, I was going, wow, this is going to be great. No sugar added, no process, no chemicals, just whole foods. Man, this is the way God did it in the Garden of Eden. This is the way it's supposed to be. And I got really excited until, until it came time to start the program. And, and when it came time to start the program, the first time we did it back in August, I remember going, now, you know what? I don't think you want to go just crazy with this thing. Because, I mean, like, I've got, I've got some lunch appointments coming up. I have to go out to eat with, with appointments or with friends, and they're going to think I'm nuts, and they've just started going to the church or this or that. And so, I, Julie, I don't know. And my wife, Julie, as only a wife can, she looked at me and she said, Sweetheart, you're doing it. Don't even think about bailing out on me. And I'm so glad she did because it, it, was, it was intense. Now, let me tell you this. The first time we did Whole30 back in August, about day seven or eight, nine and ten, something so right in there, we'd kind of gotten into it. There were some days when I'm not going to lie. It was tough. Julie got cranky. <laughs> but 
but I helped her through. I'm a servant heart. I'm just kidding, man. She had to help me more than anything. It was tough. But here's what we discovered about eating. In order to change the way you think, you have to change the way you act. In order to change the way you think, you have to change the way you act. You see, we get it backed up. We, we think we get it reversed. We, we, we're like, no, no, no. I, I'm not going to change anything until, until I feel it. Until it's, wait, what do we say? Until it's authentic. Until it's sincere. I, I've got to be true to me. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Do the right thing and watch God transform the way you think. Now, if you're not doing Fearless 30 or Whole 30, that's, that's between, that's no big deal. But I'm just telling you the, the benefits. And, and what's funny, too, is the way people respond to the prospect of Whole 30 or of changing their life. Well, I don't know. I have to have dot, dot, dot. You know, the, the, the part of Whole 30 is you eat three meals, no snacks. Three meals. Now, this Whole 30 is not the Bible, it's not the inerrant word of God, but it's, it's a program. It's, it's a plan. And, and people who go, no, no, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. Some of you, that's a laugh of recognition. But it's not that big a deal. It, it's, it's, yeah, you can go from noon 30 until 5.30 without some kind of food or bar. It, it's possible but in order to change the way we think, we have to change the way we act. This is what Jesus was saying in the most famous sermon ever delivered. His Sermon on the Mount that begins in Matthew chapter number 5. Jesus is saying kind of at the very beginning of his earthly ministry, when he begins preaching on a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee, he, he says, listen, this, this kingdom of God thing, this, this good news gospel changes everything everything. It's going to change the way you think. It's going to change the way you talk to your spouse. It's going to change the way you look at marriage. It's going to change the way you parent. It's going to change the way you spend money. It's going to change the way you save, change the way you look at charity. It changes everything. It changes everything. And it shouldn't surprise us that even in Matthew, Jesus addresses our fears. He, he talks about our anxieties and uh, this toxic stress that we have in our lives. And, and if you've got your Bibles, look in Matthew chapter 6. And, and as you're looking there, I think it's fascinating that what Jesus was talking about 2,000 years ago is absolutely relevant where you and I live right now. As much as the world has changed, people have not. We're, we're still the same in this respect our fears, and our anxieties. Look at what Jesus says. Matthew chapter number 6, verse 31 and 30 through 34. Jesus says, So don't worry about these things, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? Does that sound familiar? I mean, isn't that amazing? 2,000 years ago. If, if he, didn't, he didn't add in there, What will we drive? Where will we work? I mean, he, he could have, but it, wasn't a, it was kind of a non-issue back then. But you understand the point. Verse 32, these things dominate the thoughts of 
unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and then he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Somebody ought to shout amen. We got enough to worry about right now before we even think about Monday morning. But in this passage of Scripture, in this little clip from the most famous sermon ever delivered, Jesus provides a tactical as well as a strategic roadmap for how to fight fear with fear. The first thing he says, he goes, don't worry about these things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father... Trust God. Trust God. You have a choice to make. I I have a choice. When I face anxiety and stress, I get to choose whether I'm going to trust God or not. Now, somebody in this room right now is thinking, well, now, Mac, it can't be that simple. Yes, it is. That doesn't mean it's that easy, but it's that simple. Your Heavenly Father already knows your needs. He knows your wants and desires. Trust God. The second thing, trade your anxiety for God's authority. Whatever it is that you're anxious about, whatever it is that you're stressed over, just just trade that in for the authority of God. If God's still God, And by the way, he is. But if God's still God, then we bring every thought captive to Christ. We bring every fear, every anxiety, and say, God, you, in your authority, your absolute, your good authority, are bigger than what I'm afraid of. Now, I recognize that when I use the word anxiety, that is a raw nerve in our world. And for some, it's a raw nerve in our lives. And sometimes, sometimes those anxieties require professional help. Sometimes they may require medication under the guidance and oversight of a physician, but ultimately, ultimately, everything is spiritual. So we need to understand that, that, a, that a pill or a glass of wine or four to take the edge off is ultimately looking to someone other than the authority and goodness of God to provide the comfort and the security, and the peace that we ultimately seek. You see, a lot of times we treat the symptoms rather than the cause. So I'm not saying that you never go see a physician, you never see a counselor. As a matter of fact, I'm a big proponent of Christian, godly counseling. But it's imperative that we and those we seek for counseling and medical care understand what's ultimately at play. We trade our anxieties for God's authority. 
But Jesus wasn't done yet. He said, seek the kingdom of God above all else. The kingdom of God. You know what a kingdom is? An authority. It's sovereignty. But then the third thing is I've got to surrender my will to his will. That's the bottom line. I surrender my will to his will. Seek first the kingdom of God and live righteously. That whatever God says biblically, that will be the guardrails. That will be the roadmap for my life. I'm not going to try to cut corners. I'm not going to look for loopholes. I'm going to follow the word of God. I'm going to surround myself with the people who help me do that. I'm going to be friendly and loving to everybody. But the people I hang with, the people I invest in and I allow to speak into my life, those folks, they're going to help me to live righteously, to surrender my will to his will. It's amazing how many of my fears and anxieties arise out of my own stupid decisions. That doesn't mean I'm stupid. That mean, I mean, let's be honest, we are all very bright. But bright people can do dumb things, I've heard. But when we surrender our will to the will of God, the peace that passes understanding guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Because we change the way we act, we change the way we think. There's, there's one last little piece there. If you go back to Proverbs chapter 9, you don't have to look it up right now, but in Proverbs 9, it says, The fear of the Lord, this reverent recognition of the absolute authority of God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then it says, The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The knowledge of the Holy One. That, that doesn't mean knowledge like head knowledge or, or book Info, data, those things are fine and they, they matter to a point, but ultimately the knowledge of the Holy One in the original language is the description of the level of connectedness, of, of intimacy between a husband and a wife. And nobody knows you better than the person who lives with you. That's kind of scary sometimes. But, but that kind of knowledge is is what God created us for, to know him, for him to know us, fearing nothing. That's why in John chapter 17, Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know God isn't just to believe in God. That's cool as far as it goes, but it's to love him. It's to engage with him. It's to do life with him. It's to trust him. This is the beginning of wisdom. This is how life actually works best. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment.
And in this moment, I want to ask you just if you would, to, just to guard and protect the, the sacredness of this moment and not be moving or stirring for any reason. The Methodists have already beat us to lubies. It's okay. If you're under the age of 25, you can get somebody to explain to you what lubies is after the service. But in this moment, I want to just make sure that we understand that, that every person in this room knows God. I don't mean knows about God. I don't mean that you're religious or that you go to church. I mean that you have the opportunity to know that you know one whose authority is complete and good. If you're here today and you've never stepped into a relationship with Jesus, that's what we're talking about. It's a relationship that is eternal life. It's not just about going to heaven when you die, although that's real. Eternal life begins in the here and now when you trust your life to the only one who loves you perfectly and unconditionally as is. And he loves you too much to leave you there. And if you've never taken that step, you've never made that leap of faith, we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. Just to pray right where you're sitting. A prayer of commitment, a prayer of beginning. Just silently, just talk to God. Just say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, you are God and I am not. So I want to reverently recognize that fact. And so, Right now, I choose to follow you. I confess my sin to you. I confess my anxiety, my fears to you. And I claim your forgiveness, your comfort, your peace. And I will follow you with everything I've got from this moment forward. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. And for just a brief moment, I want to ask for your, if you will, remain with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. And if you just prayed that prayer and you meant it for the first time, I get to be the one to tell you this is the greatest moment of your life. It's the most significant, the most important moment. And so we want to be a family of faith. We want to help going forward from this moment any way that we can. We want to help you to grow. We want to help you to engage. We want to be that family of faith. and. To be totally candid, we need you. 
We want to learn from you. We want to grow with you. We're better together. And so before you leave today, if you just prayed that prayer, I want to ask you to do two things. Number one, just make a brief moment to make a personal connection. Because that's what this is about. It's your connection with God. It's your connection with the family of faith, the church, this church. And just take your program. Inside there, there's a thing called the Connect card. And you can just fill that information out, your name and contact info. We always keep that in-house. And then make sure that you indicate there, I'm committing my life to Christ this week, today. Tear it off at the perforation. And before you leave, hand it to an usher. Or maybe on your way out the, the main lobby over here, you'll see a little blue awning. And you can hand it to somebody under that awning. Just as you hand it to them, say, hey, today was my day. It's too important to let it slide by and just kind of see what happens. You take some intentionality, some deliberateness. And then also, as our heads are bowed, I want to ask you, if you just prayed that prayer, if you would just raise your hand, just very quietly but unmistakably, raise your hand in order to mark this moment. To know that it's real, that it, that it happened. And though we may not know you very well, know that we love you. And we're excited for you. We celebrate this with you. And so as a, as a family, we celebrate that. As you put your hands down, we put our hands together to tell you, welcome home.